What's up, guys? It's Andrew Bax on the Late Night Facts Bax podcast. Right now, it is currently 9:20 p.m., so it's a great time to spit out some facts and say completely 100% things. You can reach out to me at latenightfacts@gmail.com and tweet out to me on Twitter for future episode suggestions at Late Night Facts. Look at my other podcast, the AA Podcast, on Anchor, YouTube, and Spotify, and definitely check it out and hit us up for suggestions. All right, now tonight's fact from the drop about is. Um, hopefully you listen to the first segment of um, first podcast of this five part series on habits. So yeah, this podcast is going to be about the first law. You'll get about the laws. You'll get the laws, what I'm talking about. If you listen to the previous episode on habits, the part one, but this law, this podcast is going to be on the first law of building, um, creating a good habit. And at the end, I'm going to talk about how to break a bad habit. And it's the inversion of the first law, which is make it invisible. All right, so we're going to get right to it. I'm referencing this book called Atomic Habits. Really great book. Um, filled with lots of useful information. So I'm going to be quoting from it. I might be reading some parts of it, but I'm trying not to read the whole time. Um, I'm trying to um, say some of my own personal stuff too. So let's get right to it. Um, the psychologist Gary Klein once told a story about a woman who attended a family gathering. She had spent years working as a paramedic and upon arriving at the event, took one look at her father-in-law and got very concerned. I don't like the way you look, she said. Her father-in-law, who was feeling perfectly fine, jokingly replied, well, I don't like your looks either. No, she insisted. You need to go to the hospital now. A few hours later, the man was undergoing life-saving surgery after an examination had revealed that he had a blockage to a major artery and was immediate, at immediate risk of a heart attack. Without his daughter-in-law's in- intuition, he could have died. What did the paramedic see? How did she predict his impending heart attack? When major arteries are obstructed, the body focuses on sending blood to critical organs and away from um, peripheral locations near the surface of the skin. The result is a change in the pattern of distribution of blood in the face. After many years of working with people um, with, with, um, with heart failure, the woman had unknowingly developed the ability to recognize this pattern on sight. She, didn't exp- she couldn't explain what it was that she noticed in her father-in-law's face, but she knew something was wrong. Similar stories exist in other fields. For example, military analysis can identify which blip on a radar screen is an enemy missile and which one is a plane from their own fleet, even though they're traveling at the same speed, flying at the same altitude, and look identical on radar in nearly every aspect. During the Gulf War, Lieutenant Commander Michael Riley saved an entire battleship when he ordered a missile shotgun despite the fact that it looked exactly like the battleship's own plan- planes on radar. He made the right call, but even his, even his superior officers couldn't explain how he did it. Museum curators have been known to discern the difference between an authentic piece of art 
and an expertly produced counterfeit, even though they don't, even though they can't tell you precisely what de details tipped them off. Experienced radiologists can look at a brain scan and predict the area where a stroke would develop before any obvious signs are visible to the untrained eye. Um, the human brain is a prediction machine. It is continuously taking in your surroundings and analyzing the information it comes across. Whenever you experience something repeatedly, like a paramedic seeing the face of a heart attack patient or a military analysis um, seeing a missile on a radar screen, your brain begins noticing what is important, sorting through the details and highlighting the relevant cues and cataloging the inf that information for future use. With enough practice, you can pick up on the cues that predict certain outcomes without consciously thinking about it. Automatically, your brain encodes the lessons learned through experience. We can't always explain what it is we are learning, but learning is happening all along the way. And your ability to notice the relevant cues in a given situation is the foundation for every habit you have. We, under, we underestimate how much our brains and bodies can do without thinking. Um, you do not tell your hair to grow. Your heart to pump, your lungs to breathe, or your stomach to digest. And yet, your body handles all this and more on autopilot. You are much more than your conscious self. So guys, consider hunger. How do you know when you're hungry? You don't necessarily have to see a cookie on the counter to realize that it's time to eat. Appetite and hunger are governed non-consciously. Your body has a variety of feedback loops that gradually alert you when it is time to eat again and that track what is going on around you and within you. Cravings can arise thanks to hormones and chemicals circulating through your body. Suddenly, you're hungry even though you're not quite sure what tipped you off. This is probably one of the most surprising insights about our habits. You don't need to be aware of the cue for a habit to begin. You can notice an opportunity and take action without dedicating conscious attention to it. This is what makes habits useful. It's also what makes them dangerous. I mean, as a habit forms, your actions come under the direction of your automatic and non-conscious mind. You fall into old patterns before you realize what's happening. Unless someone points it out, you may not notice that you cover your mouth with your hand whenever you laugh, that you apologize before asking a question, or that you have a habit of finishing other people's sentences. And the more you repeat these patterns, the less likely you become to question what you're doing and why you are doing it. Uh, there's a story about a retail clerk who was instructed, um, this is from the book, to cut up empty gift cards after customers had used them, had used the balance on the card. One day, the clerk cashed out a few customers in a row who purchased with gift cards. When the next person walked up, the clerk swiped the customer's actual credit card, picked up the scissors, and then cut it in half, entirely on autopilot, before looking up at the stunned customer and realizing what had just happened. Another, um, so yeah. There was another story, too, of a man who had spent years working as a lifeguard and went off duty. He would occasionally yell, walk, whenever he saw a child running. So over time, 
The cues that spark our habits become so common that they're essentially invisible. The treats on the kitchen counter, the remote control next to the couch, the phone in our pocket. Our responses to these cues are so deeply encoded that it may feel like the urge to act um, comes from nowhere. For this reason, we must um, begin the process of behavior change with awareness. Um, but first, we need to handle our current ones. This can be more challenging than it sounds because once a habit is firmly rooted in your life, it is mostly unconscious and automatic. If a habit remains mindless, you can't expect to improve it. As the psychologist Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Moving on to an important point called the habits scorecard. So the Japanese railway system is regarded as one of the best in the world. If you ever find yourself riding a train in Tokyo, you'll notice that the conductors have a peculiar habit. As each operator runs a train, they proceed through a ritual of pointing at different objects and calling out commands. When the train approaches a signal, the operator will point at it and say, signal is green. As the train pulls into and out of each station, the operator will point at the speed speedometer and call it the exact speed. When it's time to leave, the operator will point at the timetable and state the time. Out on the platform, other employees are performing similar actions. Before each train departs, staff members will point along the edge of the platform and declare all clear. Every detail is identified, pointed at, and named aloud. This process, known as pointing and calling, is a safety system designed to reduce mistakes. I mean, it seems silly, but it works incredibly well. Um, pointing and calling reduces errors up by up to 85% and cuts accidents by 30%. It says here, the MTA subway system in New York City adopted a mod ride version that is point only, and within two years, quote, of implementation, incidents of incorrectly birthed subways fell 57%. Pointing and calling is so effective because it raises the level of awareness from a non-conscious habit to a more conscious level. Because the train operators must use their eyes, hand, mouth, and ears, they are more likely to notice problems before something goes wrong. Um, this is um, quoting the book from the author. He said, my wife does something similar. Whenever we're preparing to walk out the door for a trip, she verbally calls out the most essential items in her packing list. I've got my keys, I've got my wallet, I've got my glasses, and I've got my husband, end quote. So guys, the more automate, automatic a behavior becomes, the less likely we are to consciously think about it. And when we have done something a thousand times before, we begin to overlook things. We assume that the next day it will be just like the last. We're so used to doing, to doing what we have always done that we don't stop to question whether it's the right thing to do at all. Many of our failures in performance are largely um, attribute, attributable to a lack of self-awareness. I mean, guys, one of our 
greatest challenges in changing habits is maintaining awareness of what we're actually doing. This helps explain why the consequences of bad habits could sneak up on us. We need a point and system point we need a point and call system for our personal lives, every one of us. And this is the origin of what James Clear in the book calls the habit scorecard. And it's a simple exercise you can use to become more aware of your behavior. So guys, I recommend if you're hearing this and you actually want to have a change, you actually want to make habits, get on a note card, get on a piece of paper, and make a list of your daily habits. So here are examples from the book. Wake up, turn off alarm, check my phone, go to the bathroom, weigh myself, take a shower, brush my teeth, floss my teeth, put on deodorant, hang up towel to dry, get dressed, make a cup of tea, and there can be more than that. Those are just some examples from the book. And so the next step is, so once you have a full list, look at each behavior and ask yourself, is this a good habit, a bad habit, or a neutral habit? So if it's a good habit, right next to your habit, a plus sign. Uh, if it's a bad habit, write negative, the negative sign. And if it's a new habit, write the equal sign. So, and here it says in the book, for example, the list above might look like this. And here's James' clear example. So wake up can be um, equal sign. Turn off alarm, equal sign. Check my phone, negative. Go to the bathroom, equal sign. Weigh myself, positive. Take a shower, positive. Brush my teeth, positive. Floss my teeth, positive. Put on deodorant, positive. Hang up towel to dry, equal. Get dressed, equal. Make a cup of tea, positive. And for you guys, if you have those same habits, it differs. It's not wake up. It's got to be an equal sign. Um, it, it's funny. Like you can't. It's weird to have a if you put negative as for wake up because I don't think that's a bad habit. Waking up starts your habits for the day. So that's kind of weird. But um. So yeah, guys, the marks you give to a particular habit will depend on your situation and your goals. So guys, for someone who's trying to lose weight, eating a bagel with peanut butter every morning might be a bad habit. For someone who's trying to bulk up and add muscle, the same behavior might be a good habit. It all depends on what you are working toward. So scoring your habits can be a bit more complex for another reason as well. The labels good habit and bad habit can be slightly inaccurate. There are no good habits or bad habits. There are only effective habits. I mean, that is effective at solving problems. All habits serve you in some way, even the bad ones, which is why you repeat them. For this exercise, guys, categorize your habits by how they will benefit you in the long run. Generally speaking, good habits will have net positive outcomes. Bad habits have net um, negative outcomes. So here's an example, guys. Smoking a cigarette may reduce stress right now, um, if that's how it's serving you, but it's not a healthy long-term behavior. So you might think it's a plus right now, good habit, but look at the long-term. Look in the future. Is this really going to help me in the future? Is this going to benefit me? And if you guys are still having trouble determining how to relate, um, how to rate um, a particular habit, um, ask this question to yourself. Does this behavior help me become the type of person I wish to be? Does this habit cast a vote for or against my desired identity? 
Habits that reinforce your desired identity are usually good habits. Habits that conflict with your desired identity are usually bad. Um, so guys, when you make, um, create your habits, score God, it's not set in stone. It can change over time as you get to do those habits that are plus sign. Maybe it changed to negative because it's not really a good habit. Um, the goal is to simply notice what is actually going on. Excuse me. The goal is simply to notice what is actually going on. Observe your thoughts and actions without judgment or internal criticism. Don't blame yourself for your faults. Don't praise yourself for your successes. So if you eat a chocolate bar every morning, acknowledge it almost as if you were watching someone else. Oh, how interesting that they would do such a thing. If you binge eat, simply notice that you're eating more calories than you should. If you waste time online, notice that you're spending your life in a way that you do not want to. So guys, the first step to changing bad habits is to be on the lookout for them. If you feel like you need extra help, then you can try pointing and calling in your life. Say out loud the action that you are thinking of taking of what the outcome will be. If you want to cut back, let's say on junk food, um, on your junk food habit, but notice yourself grabbing another cookie, grabbing another gluten-free something like that. I don't know. Gluten-free stuff sucks to begin with. Say out loud, I'm about to eat this cookie, but I don't need it. Eating will cause me to gain weight and hurt my health. Hearing your bad habits spoken aloud makes the consequences seem more real. It adds weight to the action rather than letting yourself mindlessly slip into an old routine. This approach is useful even if you're simply trying to remember a task on your to-do list. Just saying out loud, tomorrow, I need to go to the post office, uh, let's say after lunch. And that you saying that increases the odds you actually do it. You're getting yourself to acknowledge the need for action. And that can all make the difference. So the process of behavior change always starts with awareness. Remember that, awareness. Strategies like pointing and calling and the habit scorecard are focused on getting you to recognize your habits and acknowledge the cues that trigger them, which makes it possible to respond in a way that benefits you. So that is the first part right there. On the first I'll making it obvious, pointing and calling makes it obvious to you because you, you're aware. Um, makes it obvious to you that you're hearing it out loud and you have more of a chance of doing it. And the habit scorecards, if you, I have one right here. It's on my desk and it's obvious because it's visual. I see it. So I, see, I look at it every day and look at the negative bad habits I have that has a negative thing. So I try to eliminate that and the positive one. So I try to do every day. So that's the first part of the first law, pointing and calling. And the habit scorecard. So, moving on. Quoting from this book. Um, in 2001, researchers in Great Britain began working with 248 people to build better exercise habits over the course of two weeks. The subjects were divided into three groups. The first group was the control group. They were simply asked to track how often they exercised. The second group was the motivation group. They were asked not only to track the workouts, but also to read some material on the benefits of exercise. The researchers also explained to the group how exercise could reduce the risk of coronary, coronary heart disease and improve heart health. Finally, there was the third group. These subjects received the same presentation as the second group, which ensured that they had equal levels of motivation. However, 
they were also asked to formulate a plan for when and where they would exercise over the following week. Specifically, each member of the third group completed the following sentence, quote, during the next day, during the next week, I will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on blank day at blank time in blank place. In the first and second groups, 35 to 38% of people exercise at least once per week. Interestingly, the motivational presentation given to the second group seemed to have no meaningful impact on behavior. But 91% of the third group exercise at least once per week, more than double the normal rate. The sentence they filled out is what researchers referred to as implementation intention, which is a plan you make beforehand about when and where to act. That is, how you intend to implement a particular habit. The cues that can trigger a habit come in a wide range of forms. Um, the feel of your phone buzzing in your pocket, <clears throat> the smell of chocolate chip cookies, um, the sound of ambulance sirens. Um, but the two most common cues are time and location. Implementation intentions leverage both of these cues. So, quote from the book from James Clear, it says, broadly speaking, the format for creating an implementation intention is, quote, when situation X arises, I will perform response Y, end quote. So hundreds of studies have shown that implementation intentions are effective for sticking to our goals, whether it's writing down the exact time and date of when you will get a flu shot or recording the time of your doctor's appointment. They increase the odds that people will stick with habits like recycling, studying, going to sleep early, and stop stopping smoking. Researchers have even found that voter turnout increases when people are forced to create implementation intentions by answering questions like, what route are you taking to the polling station? At what time are you planning to go? What bus will you get there? We'll get you there. Other successful government programs have prompted citizens to make a clear plan to send taxes in on time or provided directions on when and where to pay late traffic bills. So guys, the punchline is clear. People who make a specific plan for when and where they will perform a new habit are more likely to follow through. Too many people try to change their habits without these basic details figured out. We tell ourselves, I'm going to eat healthier or I'm going to write more. But we never say when and where these, where these habits are going to happen. We leave it up to chance and hope that we will just remember to do it. Or feel motivated at the right time. An implementation intention sweeps away foggy notions like, I want to work out more, or I want to be more productive, or I should vote. And transforms them into a concrete plan of action. Many people think they lack motivation when they what they really lack is clarity. It is not always obvious when and where to take action. Some people spend their entire lives waiting for the time to be right to make an improvement. Over an implementation intention, um, I mean, no, sorry, once an implementation intention has been set, you don't have to wait for inspiration to strike. Do I write a chapter today or not? Um, do I meditate this morning or at lunch? When the moment of action occurs, 
there's no need to make um, a decision. Um, simply follow your predetermined plan. Quote from the book, the simple way to apply the strategy to your habits is to fill out this sentence. I will blank behavior at blank time in blank location. Here are some examples, guys, if you can't think of anything right now. Um, meditation. I will meditate for one minute at 7 a.m. in my kitchen. Study. I will study Spanish for 20 minutes at 6 p.m. in my bedroom. Exercise. I will exercise for one hour at p.m. in my local gym. Marriage. So for you guys who are listening out there who are married, shout out parents. Um, I will make a partner a cup of tea at 8 a.m. in the kitchen. So if you aren't sure when to start your habit, try the first day of the week, month, or year. People are more likely to take action at um, those times because hope is usually higher. If we have hope, we have a reason to take action. A fresh start feels motivating. Um, there's also another benefit to implementation intentions. Being specific about what you want and how you achieve it helps you say no to things that derail progress, distract your attention, and pull you off course. Um, we often say yes to little requests because we are not clear enough about what we need to do, be doing instead. When your dreams are vague, it's easy to rationalize little exceptions all day long and never get around to the specific things you need to do to succeed. So guys, there are many ways to use implementation and intentions in your life and work. And as James Clear, author of this book, says, one strategy he uses and actually recommends people to use is this approach called habit stacking. And it is a simple plan to overhaul your habits. So here we go. Here's a story, quoting from the book. The French philosopher Denis Diderot lived in nearly his entire life in poverty, but that all changed one day in 1765. Diderot's daughter was about to be married, and he could not afford to pay for the wedding. Despite his lack of wealth, Diderot was well known for his role in the co-founder and writer of Encyclopédia, one of the most comprehensive encyclopedias of the time. When Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, heard of Diderot's financial troubles, her heart went out to him. She was a book lover and greatly enjoyed his encyclopedia. She offered to buy Diderot's personal library for £1,000, more than $150,000 today. Suddenly, Diderot had money to spare. With his new wealth, he not only paid for the wedding, but also acquired a scarlet robe for himself. Diderot's scarlet robe was beautiful, so beautiful, in fact, that he immediately noticed how out of place it seemed when surrounded by his more common possessions. He wrote that there was no, quote, no more coordination, no more unity, no more beauty, beauty, end quote, between, between his elegant robe and the rest of his stuff. Diderot soon felt the urge to upgrade his possessions. He replaced his rug with one from Damascus. He decorated his home with expensive sculptures. 
He bought a mirror to place above the mantel and a better kitchen table. He tossed aside his old straw chair for a leather one, like falling dominoes. One purchase led to the next. Overall, Diderot's behavior is not uncommon. In fact, the tendency for one purchase to lead to one an, another one has a name, the Diderot effect. The Diderot effect states that obtaining a new possession often creates a spiral of consumption that leads to additional purchases. And we can spot this pattern everywhere. You buy a dress and have to get new shoes and earrings to match. You buy a couch and suddenly question the layout of your entire living room. You buy a toy for your child and soon find yourself purchasing all of the accessories that go with it. Uh, like Legos or Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, whatever they play with these days. It's a chain reaction of purchases. Many human behaviors follow this style. You often decide what to do next based on what you have just finished doing. Going to the bathroom leads to washing and drying your hands, which reminds you that you need to put the dirty towels in the laundry, so you add laundry detergent to the shopping list, and so on. No behavior happens in isolation. Each action becomes a cue that triggers the next behavior. So overall, why is this important? When it comes to building new habits, you can use the connectedness of behavior to your advantage. One of the best ways to build a new habit is to identify a current habit you already do each day and then stack your new behavior on top. And now this is what is called habit stacking. Habit stacking, quote from James Clear, is a special form of implementation intention. Rather than pairing your new habit with a particular time and location, you pair it with a current habit. This method, which was created by B.J. Fogg as part of his Tiny Habits program, can be used to design an obvious cue for nearly any habit, end quote. And James Clear makes this formula, um, formula I reference SpongeBob SquarePants, oh my gosh, um, the formula is, quote, after blank current habit, I will blank new habit. So, for example, here's some examples. You can't think of anything. Meditation. After I pour my cup of coffee each morning, I will meditate for one minute. Wow. Um, one minute. Wow, that's a that's a banger. Um, exercise. After I take off my work shoes, I will immediately change into my workout clothes. Gratitude. After I sit out, after I sit down to dinner, I will say one thing I'm grateful for that happened today. Marriage. After I get into bed at night, I'll give my partner a kiss. Shout out parents. Um, safety. After I put on my running shoes, I would text a friend or family where I'm running and how long it'll take. <laughs> wow, people don't do that nowadays. Um, the key is to tie your desired behavior into something you already do each day. Once you have mastered this basic structure, you can begin to create larger stacks by chaining small habits together. This allows you to take advantage of the natural momentum that comes from one behavior leading to the next, a positive version of the Diderot effect. Um, so here's a visual on the book. Obviously, you guys can't see it, so I'm going to try to explain it to you. So you know the um, four reactions, the cue, craving, response, reward. So imagine the habit one. It's, it goes from cue, craving, response, reward. Then imagine a row below it, and it's habit two. And the reward from um, habit um, one is the dotted line that goes from reward to the cue for habit two. So then for habit two, it's cue, craving, response, reward. And then the reward for habit two, there's a dotted line that connects to the habit three's cue, which goes to craving, response, reward. Reward from habit three starts to cue for habit four, and so on. You guys get the pattern. So 
this is James Clear, um, his morning routine, habit stack, um, and some others that ours might look like. So here's his. After I pour my morning cup of coffee, I'll meditate for 60 seconds. After I meditate for 60 seconds, I'll write my to-do list for the day. After I write my to-do list for the day, I will immediately begin my first task. And then here's an example of his during the evening. After I finish eating dinner, I will put my plate directly into the dishwasher. After I put my dishes away, I would nearly wipe down the counter. After I wipe down the counter, I would set out my coffee mug for tomorrow morning. See, see how that starts? Um, and especially, do you guys notice that for the evening one, he puts his coffee mug out for tomorrow morning. And then the first thing he does in the morning is, after he pours his morning cup of coffee, I would meditate for 60 seconds. So he's already preparing for the next day. So we should keep that in mind. That before you go to bed and stuff, put things out for the next day. Because putting things out, like a coffee mug, clothes, like maybe some dumbbells so you get motivated to work out, has a better, uh, makes you more motivated to do things, makes you um, more likely to do it. Um, seeing a visual uh, makes you do the action. And if maybe if there isn't no visual, if there isn't a visual, like sometimes I do, sometimes I don't put anything out. So when I wake up from my alarm, I just click the snooze and go back to bed. Because when I look around, I'm like, oh, I could just sleep. But when I put up my dumbbells, workout clothes, when I wake up, they're like, oh, I got to go work out. So those visuals keep me going. Um, they get me up. And um, you can also invert new behaviors into the middle of your current routines. So, so for example, this is James Clear example. You may <clears throat> already have a morning routine that looks like this. Wake up, make my bed, take a shower. Let's say you want to develop the habit of reading more each night. You can expand your habit stack and try something like wake up, make my bed, place a book on my pillow, take a shower. Now when you climb into bed each night, a book will be sitting there waiting for you to enjoy. So overall, guys, habit stacking allows you to create a simple set of rules that guide your future behavior. It's like you always have a game plan for which action should come next. Once you get comfortable with this approach, you can develop general habit stacks to guide you whenever the situation is appropriate. So here are some examples. Exercise. When I see a set of stairs, I will take them instead of using the elevator. Social skills. When I walk into a party, I will introduce myself to someone I don't know yet. Finances. Oh, I know some people who need to do this. When I want to buy something over $100, I will wait 24 hours before purchasing. Healthy eating. When I serve myself a meal, I'll always put veggies on my plate first. Mood. When the phone rings, I will take one deep breath. And smile before answering. Seems like a lot of fast food restaurants employees need to do that. Um, seems like they're pissed off 24-7. Um, forgetfulness. When I leave a public place, I would check the table and chairs to make sure I don't leave anything behind. And that's me. Because, quick story. I landed in Pittsburgh. Um, no, it was Orlando with my dad. Luckily, it was behind me. Thank the Lord. Maybe, I don't know. Sometimes there's not so good people. You should never judge if a person's bad or good or not. That would be a whole other podcast. I got up, walked out, realized I left all my electronics and all my porn stuff in my Duke duffel bag on the chair. I didn't even notice it. My dad was behind me and he's like, Andrew, look what you forgot. Um, so I, um, luckily he was there. So I need to work on that too. So forgetfulness thing. Um, quick story. Yeah. So thank God he was there because if he wasn't, Probably never have my beats that I have now. So no matter how you use the strategy, the secret to create 
um, to creating a successful habit habit stack is selecting the right cue to kick things off. Unlike an implementation intention, which, which specifically states the time and location for a given behavior, habit stacking implicitly has a time and location built into it. When and where you choose to insert a habit into your daily routine can make a big difference. If you're trying to add meditation to your morning routine, but mornings are chaotic and your kids keep running into the room, then that time may be the um, then that may be kind of the wrong place in time. Consider when you're most likely to be successful. Don't ask yourself to do a habit when you're likely to be occupied with something else. Also, your cue should also have the same frequency as your desired habit. If you want to do a habit every day, but you stack it on top of a habit that only happens on Monday, then that's not a good choice. One way to find that right trigger for your habit stack is by brainstorming a list of current habits. And you can use your habit scorecard, um, what I was saying earlier, as a starting point. This is what James Clear says. Alternatively, you can create a list with two columns. In the first column, write down the habits you do each day without fail. So here are some examples. Get out of bed, take a shower, brush your teeth, get dressed, brew a cup of coffee, eat breakfast, take the kids to school, start the workday, eat lunch, end the workday, change out of working clothes, sit down for dinner, turn off the lights, go to bed. Your list can ultimately be much longer, but hopefully you guys get the idea. So now in the second column, write down all the things that happen to, do, that happen to you each day without fail. So here are some examples. Maybe you could think of more than these four. The sun rises. You get a text message. The song you're listening to ends. The sun sets. So if once you have these two lists, you can begin searching for the best place to layer your new habit into your lifestyle. Habit stacking works best when the cue is highly specific and immediately actionable. Many people select cues that are too vague. Um, quote, this is what James Clear said. He said, quote, I made this mistake myself. When I wanted to start a push-up habit, my habit was, my habit stack was, when I take a break for lunch, I would do 10 push-ups. At a first glance, this sounded reasonable, but soon I realized the trigger was unclear. Would I do my push-ups before I ate lunch? After I ate lunch? Where would I do them? And he said, after a few inconsistent days, I changed my habit stack to, quote, when I, chain, when I close my laptop for lunch, I would do 10 push-ups next to my desk. And right then, ambiguity is gone. So habits like read more, eat better, are worthy, um, worthy causes. But these goals do not provide instruction on how and when to act. And I made that uh, mistake as well. Be specific and clear. After I close the door, after I brush my teeth, after I sit down at the table, being specific is really important. The more tightly bound your new habit is to a specific cue, the better the odds are that you will notice when the time comes to act. So guys, the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. So strategies like implementation intentions and habit stacking are among the most practical ways to create obvious cues for your habits and design a clear plan for when and where to take action. All right, now moving on. Now this segment could be about how, still part of the first habit, how motivation is overrated and how your environment, environment matters more.
So here's going to be a story from the James Clear's book. Anne Thorndike, Anne Thorndike um, a primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, had a crazy idea. She believed she could improve the eating habits of thousands of hospital staff and visitors without changing their willpower or motivation in the slightest way. In fact, she didn't plan on take, talking to them at all. Thorndike and her colleagues designed a six-month study to alter the choice architecture of the hospital cafeteria. They started by changing how drinks were arranged in the room. Originally, the refrigerators located next to the cash registers in the cafeteria were filled with only soda. The researchers added water as an option to each one. Additionally, they placed baskets of bottled water next to the food stations throughout the room. Soda was still in the primary refrigerators, but water was now available at all drink locations. Over the next three months, the number of soda sales at the hospital dropped by 11.4%. Meanwhile, sales of bottled water increased by 25.8%. They made similar adjustments and saw similar results with the food in the cafeteria. Nobody had said a word to anyone eating there. People often choose products not because of what they are, but because of where they are. If you walk into the kitchen and see a plate of cookies on the counter, um, you'll probably pick up a half a dozen and then start eating, even if you haven't been thinking about it beforehand and weren't necessarily hungry. Um, if the, let's say, a table at like an office is always filled with donuts and bagels, going to be hard not to grab one every now and then. Your habits change depending on the room you are in and then the cues in front of you. Environment is an invisible hand that shapes human behavior. Despite our unique personalities, certain behaviors tend to arise again and again under certain environmental conditions. In church, people tend to talk in whispers. On a dark street, people act wary and guarded. In this way, the most common form of Change is not internal, but external. We are changed by the world around us. Every habit is context-dependent. In 1936, a guy named Kurt Lewin wrote a simple equation that makes a powerful statement. Behavior is a function of the person in their environment, or B equals F, in parentheses, P, comma, E, close parentheses. It didn't take long for Lewin's equation to be tested in business. In 1952, the economist Hawkins Stern described a phenomenon he called suggestion impulse buying, which is, quote, is triggered when a shopper sees a product for the first time and visualizes a need for it, end quote. In other words, customers will occasionally buy products not because they want them, but because of how they are presented to them. For example, items at eye level tend to be purchased more than those down near the floor. For this reason, You'll find expensive brand names featured in easy-to-reach locations on store shelves because they drive the most profit, while cheaper alternatives are tucked away in harder-to-reach spots. The same goes for end caps, which are the units at the end of aisles. End caps are money-making machines for retailers because they are obvious locations that encounter a lot of foot traffic. For example, 45% of Coca-Cola sales come specifically from end-of-the-aisle racks. And then I was walking at Hairsy the other day, and it's just big name chip brands all before you enter the aisle. It's like right there. So that's how it's like all Doritos, Lay's, and then there's Oreos, Aunt Annie's, Little Debbie's. 
those big name brands are right there and they um, get the most profit because they're right there, eye level, shiny, looks good. Um, and everyone can see it. It's obvious. It's an environment where everybody can see it. The more obviously available a product or service is, the more likely you are to try it. People drink Bud Light because it is in every bar and visit Starbucks because it is on every counter, corner. Um, we like to think that we are in control. If we choose water over soda, we assume it because we wanted to do so. The truth, however, is that many of the actions we take each day are shaped not by purposeful drive and choice, but by the most obvious option. Every living being has its own methods for sensing and understanding the world. Eagles have remarkable long-distance vision. Snakes can smell by tasting the air um, with their highly sensitive tongues. Sharks can detect small amounts of electricity and vibrations in the water caused by nearby fish. Even bacteria um, have, I'm reading this from the book, chemoreceptors, um, tiny kind of sensory cells that allow them to detect toxic chemicals in their environment. In humans, perception is directed by the sensory nervous system. We perceive the world through sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. But we also have other ways of sensing stimuli. Some are conscious, but many are not conscious. For instance, you can notice when the temperature drops before a storm, or when the pain in your gut rises during a stomach ache, or when you fall off balance while walking on rocky ground. Receptors in your body pick up on a wide range of internal stimuli, such as the amount of salt in your blood or the need to drink when thirsty. The most powerful of all human sensory abilities, however, is vision. The human body has about 11 million sensory receptors. Approximately 10 million of those are dedicated to sight. Some experts estimate that half of the brain's resources are used on vision. Given that we are more dependent on vision than on any other sense, it should come as no surprise that visual cues are the greatest um, catalyst of our behavior. For this reason, a small change in what you see can lead to a big shift in what you do. As a result, you can imagine how important it is to live and work in environments that are filled with productive cues and devoid of unpredictable ones, or I mean, unproductive ones. Thankfully, um, you don't have to be a victim in the environment. You can be the architect, and this is how we get to designing your environment for success. So reading this from the book, um, during the energy crisis and oil embargo of the 1970s, Dutch researchers began to pay close attention to the country's energy usage. In one suburb near Amsterdam, they found that some homeowners used 30% less energy than their neighbors, despite the homes being of similar size and getting electricity from the same, for the same price. It turned out that the houses in the neighborhood were nearly identical except for one feature, the location of the electrical meter. Some had one in the basement. Others had the electrical meter upstairs in the main hallway. Uh, as you guys probably can guess, the homes with the meters located in the main hallway used less electricity. When their energy use was obvious and easy to track, people changed their behavior. Every habit is initiated by a cue, and we are more likely to notice cues that stand out. Unfortunately, the environments where we live and work often make it easy not to do certain actions because there's no obvious cue to trigger the behavior. It's easy not to practice the guitar when it's tucked away in the closet. 
it's easy not to read a book when the bookshelf is in the corner of the guest room. It's easy not to take your vitamins when they're out of sight in the pantry. Um, when the cues, when the cues that spark a habit are um, um, are kind of hidden, they're easy to ignore. By comparison, creating obvious obvious visual cues can draw your attention toward a desired habit. In the early 1990s, the cleaning staff at um, uh, this airport in Amsterdam installed a small sticker that looked like a fly near the center of each urinal. Apparently, when men stepped up to the urinals, they aimed for what they thought was a bug. The stickers improved their aim and significantly reduced spillage around the urinals. Further analysis determined that the stickers cut bathroom cleaning costs by 8% per year. Um, 8% per year. Big number. Just by putting flies on your for guys to aim. And I've seen some of those before. This camp years ago. First time I saw that thing, I, was, I thought it was a real bug. So I, I aimed for the bug. And there was no mess. <laughs> um, so here are some ways you can redesign your environment and make the cues for your preferred habits um, more obvious. If you want to remember to take your medication each night, put out your pill bottle directly next to the faucet on the bathroom counter. If you want to practice guitar more frequently, place your guitar stand in the middle of the living room. If you want to remember to send more thank you notes, keep a stack of stationery um, on your desk. If you want to drink more water, fill up a few water bottles each morning and place them in common locations around the house. If you want to make a habit a bigger part of your life, make the cue a big part of your environment. The most persistent behaviors usually have multiple cues. Like, guys, consider how many different ways a smoker could be prompted to pull out a cig. Driving in the car, seeing a friend smoke, feeling stressed at work or at home, and so on. The same strategy can be employed for good habits. By sprinkling triggers throughout your surroundings, you increase the odds that you'll think about your habit throughout the day. Make sure the best choice is the most obvious one. Making a better decision is easy and natural when the cues for good habits are right in front of you. Environment design is powerful, not only because it influences how we engage with the world, but also because we rarely do it. Most people um, live in a world others have created for them. But you can alter the spaces where you live and work to increase your exposure to positive cues and reduce your exposure to negative ones. Environment design allows you to take back control and become the architect of your life. Be the designer of your world, not merely the consumer of it. So moving on to the context of the cue. Um, so the cues that trigger a habit can start out very specific, but over time your habits become associated not with a single trigger, but with their entire context surrounding the behavior. For example, many people drink more in a social situation, social situations than they would ever drink alone. The trigger is rarely a single cue, but rather the whole situation. Watching your friends order drinks, hearing the music at the bar, seeing the beers on tap. We mentally assign our habits to the locations in which they occur. Um, home, the office, at school, the gym. Um, each location develops a connection to certain habits and routines. You establish a particular relationship with the objects on your desk. 
um, the items on your kitchen counter, the things in your bedroom. Our behavior is not defined by the objects in the environment, but by our relationship to them. In fact, there's a useful way to think about the influence of the environment on your behavior. Um, just stop thinking about your environment as filled with objects. Start thinking about it as filled with relationships. Think in terms of how you interact with the spaces around you. For one person, her couch is a place where she reads for an hour each night. For someone else, the couch is where he watches television and eats a bowl of sugar after work. Um, different people can have different memories and thus different habits associated with the same place. So is it good news? Yes. You can train yourself to link a particular habit with a particular context. So there was one study, and it had sci and scientists instructed um, in so many insomniacs um, to get into bed only when they were tired. They couldn't fall asleep. They were told to sit in a different room until they became sleepy. Over time, subjects began to associate the context of their bed with the action of sleeping, and it became easier to quickly fall asleep when they climbed in bed. Their brains learned that sleeping, not browsing on the phones, not watching TV, not staring at the clock, it's the only action that happened in that room. The power of context also reveals an important strategy. Habits can be easier to change in a new environment. It helps to escape the um, subtle triggers and cues that nudge you toward your current habits. Um, go to a new place, a different coffee shop, bench in the park, corner of your room um, you barely use, and create a new routine there. It is easier to associate a new habit with a new context than to build a new habit in the face of competing cues. It can be difficult to go to bed early if you watch TV in your bedroom each night. It can be hard to study in the living room without getting distracted. That's where you play video games too. But when you step outside your normal environment, you leave your behavior, behavioral biases behind. You aren't battling old environmental cues, which allows new habits to form without interruption. Want to think more creatively? Move to a bigger room, a rooftop patio, or a building with expansive architecture. Take a break from the space where you do your daily work, which is also linked to your current um, uh, to your current thought patterns. Want to try to eat healthy? It is likely that you can shop um, that you shop on autopilot at your regular supermarket. Try a new grocery store. You may find it easier to avoid unhealthy foods when your brain doesn't automatically know where it is located in the store. When you can't manage to get to an entirely new environment, redefine or rearrange your current one. Create a separate space for work, study, exercise, entertainment, and cooking. The man, uh, try to use this quote. Um, use this, one space, one use. Um, whenever possible, avoid mixing the context of one habit with another. When you start mixing context, you'll start mixing habits, and the easier ones will usually win out. This is one reason why the versatility of modern technology is both a strength, strength and a weakness. You can use your phone for all sorts of tasks, which makes it a powerful, powerful device. But when you can use your phone to do nearly anything, it becomes hard to associate it with one task. You want to be productive, but you're also conditioned to browse social media, check email, and play video games whenever you open your phone. It's a, it's a mishmash of cues. You may be kind of thinking, you don't understand. I live in New York City. My apartment is the size of a box. I need 
each room to play multiple roles. Hey, yeah, that's fair enough. If your space is limited, divide your room into activity zones. Um, a chair for reading, a desk for writing, a table for eating. You can do the same with your digital spaces. Um, James Clear says, I know a writer who uses his computer only for writing, his tablet only for reading, and his phone only for social media and texting. Every habit should have a home, end quote. Um, if you can manage to stick with this strategy, each context will become associated with a particular habit and mode of thought. Habits thrive under predictable circumstances like these. Focus comes automatically when you're sitting at your work desk. Relaxation is easier when you're in a space designed for that purpose. Sleep comes quickly when it's the only thing that happens in your bedroom. If you want behaviors that are stable and predictable, you need an environment that is stable and predictable. A stable environment where everything has a place and a purpose is an environment where habits can easily form. So now we're going to be talking about um, the last part of the podcast, this episode. It's the secret to self-control. So quoting from the book, in 1971, as the Vietnam War um, was heading into the 16th year, Congressman Robert Steele from Connecticut and Morgan Murphy from Illinois made a discovery that stunned the American public. While visiting the troops, they had learned that over 15% of U.S. soldiers stationed there were heroin addicts. Follow-up research revealed that 35% of service members in Vietnam had tried heroin, as in, and as many as 20% were addicted. The problem was even worse when they had what um, worse than they had initially thought. The discovery led to a flurry of activity in Washington, including the creation of the Special Action Office of Drug Abuse Prevention under President Nixon to promote prevention and um, rehab and to track addicted service members when um, they returned home. Um, Lee Robbins was one of the researchers in charge, and a finding that completely um, upended the accepted beliefs about addiction. Robbins found that when soldiers who had been heroin users returned home, only 5% of them became re-addicted within a year, and just 12% relapsed within three years. In other words, Approximately 9 out of 10 soldiers who use heroin in Vietnam eliminated their addiction nearly overnight. This finding contradicted the prevailing view at the time, which considered heroin addiction to be a permanent and irreversible condition. Instead, Robbins revealed that addictions could spontaneously dissolve if there was a radical change in the environment. In Vietnam, soldiers spent all day surrounded by cues triggering heroin use. It was easy to access. They were engulfed by the constant stress of war. They built friendships with fellow soldiers who were also heroin users. And they were thousands of miles from home. Once the soldier returned to the United States, though, he found himself in an environment devoid of those triggers. When the context changed, so did the habit. Compare this situation to that of a typical drug user. Someone becomes addicted at home or with friends. Goes to a clinic to get cleaned, which is devoid of all the environment, environmental stimuli that prompt their habit. Then returns to their old neighborhood with all of their previous cues that caused them to get addicted in the first place. It's no wonder um, that usually you see numbers that are, are the exact opposite of those of the Vietnam study. Typically, 90% of heroin users become re-addicted once they return home from rehab. The Vietnam studies ran counter to many of our cultural beliefs 
about bad habits because it challenged a um, conventional association of unhealthy behavior as a moral weakness. If you're overweight, a smoker, or an addict, you've been told your entire life that is because you lack self-control. Maybe even that you're a bad person. The idea that a little bit of discipline would solve all our problems is deeply embedded in our culture. Recent research, however, shows something different. When scientists analyze people who appear to have tremendous self-control, it turns out those individuals aren't all that different from those who are struggling. Instead, disciplined people are better at structuring their lives in a way that does not require heroic willpower and self-control. In other words, they spend less time in tempting situations. Um, the people with the best self-control are typically the ones who need to use it the least. It's easier to practice self-restraint when you don't have to use it very often. So yes, perseverance, grit, and willpower are essential to success. But the way to improve these qualities is not by wishing you were a more disciplined person, but by creating a more disciplined environment. The counterintuitive idea makes even more sense once, you're, once you understand what happens when a habit is formed in the brain. A habit that has been encoded in the mind is ready to be used whenever the relevant situation arises. So James says, when um, Patty Alwell, a therapist from Austin, Texas, started smoking, she would often light up while riding horses with a friend. Eventually, she quit smoking and avoided it for years. She also stopped riding. Decades later, she hopped on a horse again and found herself craving a cigarette for the first time in forever. The cues were still internalized. She just hadn't been exposed to them in a long time. So overall, once a habit has been encoded, the urge to act follows whenever the environmental cues reappear. This is one reason behavior change um, techniques can backfire. Shaming obese people with weight loss presentations can make them feel stressed. And as a result, many people return to their favorite coping strategy, overeating. Showing pictures of blackened lungs to smokers lead to higher levels of anxiety, which drives many people to reach for another SIG. If you're not careful about cues, you can cause the very behavior you want to stop. Bad habits are autocatalytic. The process feeds itself. They foster the feelings they try to numb. You feel bad, so you eat junk food. Because you eat junk food, you feel bad. Um, watching television makes you feel sluggish, so you watch more TV because you don't have the energy to do anything else. Like the couch life. Um, if you haven't checked out that podcast, I think it's a bunch of podcasts back on the couch life. That's you. Watch that so you can have a change. Um, going back, worrying about your health makes you um, feel anxious, which causes you to smoke to ease your anxiety, which makes your health even worse. And soon you're fine feeling more anxious. It's a downward spiral, a runaway train for bad habits. Researchers refer to this phenomenon as, as quote, cue-induced wanting. Um, an external trigger causes a compulsive craving to repeat that bad habit. Once you notice something, you begin to want it. This process is happening all the time, often without us realizing it. Scientists have found that showing addicts a picture of cocaine for just 33 milliseconds simulates the reward pathway in the brain and sparks desire. The speed is too fast for the brain to consciously register. The addicts couldn't even tell you what they had seen, but they craved the drug all the same. 
So here's the punchline. You can break a habit, but you're unlikely to forget it. Once the mental grooves of a habit have been craved, carved into your brain, they are nearly impossible to remove entirely, even if they go unused um, for quite a while. And that means that simply resisting temptation is an ineffective strategy. It is hard to maintain um, a Zen attitude in a life filled with interruptions. It takes too much energy. In the short run, you can choose to overpower temptation. In the long run, we become a product of the environment that we live in. So, um, to put it bluntly, um, it's rare that to see people stick to positive habits in a negative environment. So a more reliable approach is to cut bad habits off at the source. One of the most practical ways to eliminate bad source, according to James Clear, is to reduce exposure to the cue that caused it. So here are some examples. If you can't seem to get any work done, leave your phone in the other room for a few hours. If you're continually feeling like you're not enough, stop feeling social media. Um, stop following social media accounts that trigger jealousy and envy. If you're wasting too much time watching TV, move the TV out of the bedroom. If you're spending too much money on electronics, quit reading reviews of the latest tech gear. If you're playing too much video games, unplug the console and put it in a closet after each use. The, this practice is an inversion of the first law of behavior change. Rather than making it obvious, you can make it invisible. Um, remove a single cue and the entire habit often fades away. So guys, overall, self-control is a short-term strategy, not a long-term one. You may be able to resist temptation once or twice, but it's unlikely you can muster the willpower to override your desires every time. Instead of summoning a new dose of willpower whenever you want to be, whenever you want to do the right thing, your energy would be better spent optimizing your environment. This is the secret to self-control. Make the cues of your good habits obvious and the cues of your bad habits invisible. So overall, because we're ending this podcast in about a minute or so, overall, how to create a good habit. For making it obvious, fill out your habit scorecard. Write down your current habits to become aware of them. Number two, use implementation intentions like I will blank behavior at blank time and blank location. Number three, use habit stacking. After blank current habit, I will blank new habit. Number four, design your environment. Make the cues of good habits obvious and visible and how to break um, a bad habit. So number one, reduce exposure. Remove the cues of your bad habits from your environment. So that is a kind of a recap of everything from this podcast. Um, I hope you guys learned a lot. Um, um, all this information can be found from a, a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. I highly recommend it. This book um, changed me. And I read it for three weeks. Changed me. I studied it a lot so I could become a better person, but well-organized. Um, go read it. Go check it out at the library. Um, buy on Amazon. It's worth your time. But um, yeah, guys, overall, um, thank you for listening to the Late Night Facts with Bax podcast. Um, remember to reach out to me at latenightfactswithbacks at gmail.com and on Twitter at latenightfacts. Um, thank you for listening to some facts before you go to bed. Um, thank you. Um, guys, thank you for everything. Um, remember, stick to the habits. Make them obvious. And make your bad habits invisible. All right, guys. Also, stay tuned for the part three um, 
habit episode, which would be on the second law, which I'm looking at my book right now. The second law is make it attractive. All right, guys, stay tuned. Axe is out. Good night.